This podcast may contain mature content, strong language and spoilers. Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the HD Movie Podcast. I'm Darren Gaskell. And I'm Hayley Alice Roberts. And we are celebrating our 40th episode in this episode. We are going to be looking at two very iconic films of 1981. Yeah, so we've got 40-year-old films. Later on, we're going to be looking at the quite astonishing heart beeps. But first, we're going to take a look at one of the notorious slasher movies of the 80s as we revisit Tony Malum's The Burning. So, the first of this week's movies, the first of our 40-year-old movies, is the notorious slasher The Burning which caused a bit of a stir on this side of the Atlantic. Um, I'm sure we'll be getting into that quite soon. But before all of that, do we have a synopsis? We certainly do. And I'm very sorry to disappoint you all, but there is no Nick Regana's synopsis for The Burning. (sighs) What have you been doing, Nick? (laughs) (laughs) However, we do have a synopsis written by Action Dan. Ah, nice one. Let's see what Action Dan has to say. A caretaker at a summer camp is burned when a prank goes tragically wrong. After several years of intensive treatment at hospital, he is released back into society, albeit missing some social skills. What follows is a bloody killing spree with the caretaker making his way back to his old stomping ground to confront one of the youths that accidentally burned him. That's a pretty good synopsis action, Dan. Yeah, I do like the missing some social skills bit. (laughs) Yeah, so it doesn't give too much away, which is nice. So it's, you know, to the point. I like that synopsis. So um, before we get into it, Darren, tell us about how you became acquainted with The Burning. I've got a long and checkered history with The Burning. I saw this, oh, many, many, many years ago. And it was the cut Sony MI video that was released in the UK. It had already caused some trouble and it had already been banned and it had come back out in a slightly abridged version and i saw the cut version first on vhs then it disappeared for a few years then it was re-released again in an even more cut version when i actually watched it i i remember seeing it and thinking this this is shorter this bit i don't remember this being as tame as it was last time there were certainly bits that i thought were missing and it was right they were they'd they'd cut even more stuff out of it when they re-released it so it was quite a relief when there was a a us version on region one dvd and i got that one and it was a bog standard release i don't think there was an awful lot on the disc but it was mercifully uncut and of course nowadays you've got a really nice arrow release with lots of extras on and that's completely uncut and it's in you know, high def, and it's all very, very nicely put together. It's taken a while to get to the point where you've got a decent edition of The Burning, but I'm glad it's here now. But for a long time, 
certainly in the UK, you couldn't see the full version of it. That's really interesting. Um, for me, I came to the burning quite late. So um, we're talking about 2014. At the time, the Abattoir Horror Festival was um, showcasing a video nasties theme. So I wanted to go and watch as many of them as I could. And um, because I've always been a fan of slasher movies and uh, recently at that time um, kind of fallen in love with Sleepaway Camp, that's another story altogether, <laughs> um, I decided to check out The Burning because it seemed on the same wavelength. So I originally streamed it. I'm pretty sure I've only ever seen it uncut. I don't recall any cuts to it. After really enjoying the movie and in my opinion, I do feel it is one of the better camping slashers out of that whole um, 80s trend. And then um, I've got my Arrow video copy and it's very beautiful. So nice steel book and um, the restoration just looks great. And there's lots of blood and gore. So what more do you want? So my history isn't as uh, long winded, but th there you go. <laughs> it's nice to come to an uncut version. I mean, I guess when you see the cut version and you see the uncut version, there's something satisfying about eventually tracking down the full version. The way to tell whether you've seen the uh, uncut version or not, it's... Um, when Ned Eisenberg's character on the raft, if you don't see him get stuck in the throat, that is the cut version. And there's a couple of other things. If you don't see the fingers get cut off and if you don't see the opening bit where the scissors get pushed in, there's like various things where you can tell whether it's the cut or the uncut version. But it does sound like you saw the uncut version all the way through. Big up to you because I had to sort of suffer the frustration of not seeing the full version for many years. And to be perfectly honest... It's not that gory a movie. I can, I can see why there was a bit of hysteria at the time because it was to do with imitable violence and the the murder weapon of choice is garden shears. And at the time, I think that James Furman said that if you could possibly go out and recreate these murders, then it was a danger to the public. But I don't think that a re-release re of The Burning uncut in the UK would have caused a wave of garden shear murders because it's bloody ridiculous to be perfectly honest the stuff he does with the shears i mean it's nasty but is it all that plausible I, I think not but of course different time back then everybody was on edge about everything and most of the stuff had violence cut out of it and the burning was no exception it was interesting that uh, thorny mi said that they they um accidentally released the uncut version now a lot of video companies seemed to accidentally release uncut versions in the 80s and then came a cropper. It was weird that a company as big as Thorny MI tried it on. Now, it may be that it was a genuine accident, but I'm wondering how somebody spotted it was the uncut version. I mean, somebody must have had to view it, realise it was the uncut version, because they must have seen a cut version, maybe, and then report it in some way. I don't get how everything works and because you were never made party to how these decisions were made there's no record of who dobbed it in uh, it was just a weird time i mean james Furman. i mean i think as they say on the commentary of the burning is probably the worst and the best thing to happen for some of these horror movies because initially it was the worst because it meant they were cut or just not seen at all but in in the coming years then they got kind of a badge of honour being labelled as a video nasty and everybody wanted to see them. So ultimately, his actions were pretty self-defeating because, you know, James Furman created a list of stuff that horror fans ended up having to see. The, you know, the 72 video nasties, 
if they hadn't been video nasties, I wouldn't have been tracking them down all these years. I wouldn't have got to 71 of them because some of them are, qu are quite honestly some of the most boring films I've ever seen. And if they hadn't been video nasty, I wouldn't have thought, you know what, I'm going to check this out to see what the fuss is about. That was the thing, as you say, it was such a strange time and, you know, quite frankly, ridiculous. And I think, yeah, there is that whole um, forbiddenness surrounding these films that it just makes you want to watch them. And I think, yeah, for me, there was an element of that with the burning. And because I love slasher films anyway, I just wanted to check out the ones that I hadn't been able to see. And because this one is considered a bit of a rival with Friday the 13th, um, so the bit of the history with it is it was allegedly pitched and written before Friday the 13th came out. And the um, special effects artist Tom Savini, who's very famous in the horror industry, had um, done the special effects for Friday the 13th and then turned down working on Friday the 13th Part 2 to work on The Burning, which was in production at the same time. This film was also a launch pad for future Hollywood stars. You've got Fisher Stevens, um, Jason Alexander and Holly Hunter in this movie, which is pretty interesting. Of course, as we've discussed already, um, it's most infamous for the Raft Massacre scene. Yeah, they decide to wipe out quite a few of the cast in one fell swoop. Normally, you'd get a bit of stalk and slash and people would get picked off one by one. But one of the innovations of the burning, one of several innovations, in fact, is that it takes the Raft scene and it kills off multiple characters at once. So it's a bit of a shock at the time. It doesn't uh, kill off Holly Hunter. I mean, Holly Hunter has actually... I mean, she hasn't disowned the burning bits. I think she's taken it off her CV. And probably it's because she doesn't really have a part in this. She's kind of in the background. I think she might have two lines in the whole movie. And I don't believe it's that Holly Hunter wants the burning wiped from her filmography. I just think that it isn't really much of a role. Not like Jason Alexander and Fisher Stevens, who have much more prominent roles in this. And they both went on to do, well, I'm not going to say bigger and better things because I've got a lot of, lot of affection for the burning. But um, Jason Alexander, obviously massively well known for Seinfeld. Fisher Stevens did Short Circuit a few years after this. Um, yeah, there's a few innovations in the burning. I mean, there's not just the fact that it uh, kills off people in multiples. It also doesn't stick to the final girl trope either. There isn't a final girl in this. It's, In fact, it isn't even a final guy. There's quite a lot of people survive this. There is a guy that's been pursued at the end, but you don't even get a single survivor at the end of the burning. There's quite a lot of people that make it through this. Yeah, I think that is what's so innovative about this movie. Um, and another thing as well, it kind of plays on that like sex equals death trope. Now, obviously, I'm quoting that from Scream, but um, a lot of the guys pursue the girls in it, but they don't really um, kind of, I suppose, give in like so quickly, like compared in a lot to a lot of horror movies, you get, you know, flirtation between characters and then there is a gratuitous sex scene. Then they end up killed. I'm just thinking of Jason, like coming in and, stabbing them while they're in a tent having sex i think that was in jason goes to hell correct me if i'm wrong yeah so i think that's quite interesting about this the the kind of um, female characters are a little bit more feisty and there's a lot more about them and i think what's interesting as well so even though they don't have sex they still get killed off mm. so there there is that there as well which is um kind of just playing with the trope it, it just plays around a lot and we haven't got these scenes that are really like 
set in the gloomy darkness where there's a killer lurking about and um, you know it's coming. The deaths actually predominantly take place in broad daylight and I think that kind of ramps up the fear factor because you just don't know when it's coming and then I can imagine um, obviously when I went into the burning I was aware of the raft massacre that is what it is iconic for but for people who hadn't seen that and didn't know it was coming that would have been pretty surprising because it's a great jump scare him just emerging and then the whole that that shot of him with the shears and then all hell breaks loose everyone gets ripped to pieces. Yeah, I think it's because it drags it out so long as well, because you get to see the canoe and they're floating up to it for absolutely ages. And you kind of know something bad's going to happen, but you just don't know when. I think somebody described it as a bit of a psycho moment where you kind of you see this killer approaching the shower, but you're not quite sure when it's going to happen. And to a certain extent, you're not quite sure if it's going to happen because it's it's kind of faked you out a couple of times, the burning in its first act where there's a couple of fake scares where you think somebody's going to die and they don't. Interestingly enough as well, after the first murder, there's a quite a long stretch of the burning where nobody gets killed at all. So you get an opening murder in about the first sort of 10, 15 minutes. And then it's about 49, 50 minutes into the movie before anybody else gets killed. And you have to get the campfire story out of the way. And then in the last sort of 40 minutes of the movie quite a lot of people do buy the farm um, but uh, yeah it, I mean it's it's an interesting slasher film in all sorts of ways in terms of its structure and the way that the story plays out I mean a lot of people said it was a bit of a rip-off of Friday the 13th but I think it's quite different to Friday the 13th in many ways whereas Friday the 13th I think it's a bit more brash and I think there's a bit more of a playful nature with Friday the 13th even though some of the murders are pretty nasty in Friday the 13th the burning's got a really mean streak in it in places especially the opening murder now I was watching the movie with the commentary on recently and they were saying how tame the opening murder is where he goes to see the prostitute I think it's horrible the first murder and I think it's because you don't see an awful lot of it which makes it even worse you see just enough to make it absolutely revolting. It's 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 a real punch in the guts, that murder. I completely agree with you. I was actually quite horrified on the rewatch because I I don't know like why it suddenly affected me this time around. Because you know, I maybe I haven't watched a horror movie or a slasher movie at least for quite a while. So yeah, that was pretty nasty, that kill. I yeah, I was quite unsettled by it. And it really does set the tone. And then, of course, you've got all the camp-based scenes and it does drag it out, as you say, because we get to know the kids a bit more in it. And I say kids because compared to Friday the 13th, the actors in this movie are looking look more age-appropriate than like getting sort of 25-year-olds to play teenagers. And this movie did it, and then um, two years later, Sleepaway Camp did it. And I think that just makes it all the more unnerving and uncomfortable to watch because, you know, it's that, like... Kind of death of the youth and it, it's, it's just really disturbing and I, and I think it's quite bold that they cast younger looking actors um to play this so it has that authenticity to it and then also going back to the campfire tale I love that I love urban legends we need to do more urban legends on on this uh, podcast but the story goes that um it is based on a legend that was um kind of told around New Jersey and upstate New York back in the day I don't know any more than that. I know there's a documentary about a killer called Cropsy, but it's not exactly linked to the burning as such, but the burning based 
the story of that legend. So that's quite interesting in itself. Yeah, the original title of the screenplay was The Cropsy Maniac, and they'd based it on this legend. They'd they'd put a few of their own wrinkles in it, but it was based on the stories that were told around the campfires of New Jersey in these summer camps. And they'd played around a little bit with the legend to fit the film. But yeah, I mean, most of these summer camps have these legends about killers or ghosts or whatever that haunt the camp every year when when a new set of campers come in there most of them probably don't pursue the campers with a pair of garden shears but yeah i mean it's based on you know aspects of of going to these summer camps because you know it's out in the middle of nowhere perfect place for people to go missing and get killed and this is probably why once movies like friday the 13th and the burning had been reasonably successful that you got a million of these things I mean, I think The Burning was actually not quite as successful as it could have been at the American box office because it was up against things like Happy Birthday to Me and Friday the 13th Part 2 at the time. So it made some money, but it kind of got swept away because Happy Birthday to Me was a massive success. I think it was I think it made an absolute ton of money considering what it was made for. And it was a reasonably big budget studio movie for a horror movie. I think Columbia did it. Um, in the rest of the world, The Burning did a lot better. Uh, I think in Japan, I think it pretty much made its budget back just from the Japanese release. So it did end up being a success. But in other parts of the world, I think it was a modest hit in the States, but it wasn't massive. In my opinion, it is a superior film to both Friday the 13th Part 2 and Happy Birthday to Me. Happy Birthday to Me is super tame, so at least this has more of an edge over that. But I can understand because the market was so saturated with slasher movies at that time. Another good one from that era is The Prowler as well, and that has Savini doing some of his best work equally on that, I think. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I thought The Burning was more successful than it actually was. Yeah, compared to Friday the 13th, it is underrated. It's one of those movies that I know if you're a horror fan, it's, you know, it's very rare to think that someone hasn't seen it if they are into the genre. Um, I'd be very surprised if somebody hadn't seen The Burning, at least now anywhere where it's more widely available. I guess there was a, a bit of time, obviously, during the late 80s and 90s when it was either not available or it was available in a very cut form of it. But now it's it's available in all of its glory. Then I, I can't see many horror fans that wouldn't have seen The Burning. I mean, if you haven't seen the burning of your horror fan, I mean, you don't have to hand your horror fan card in, but it's so, <laughs> but it's not. but it's something that you should go and see because it's kind of an iconic part of the slasher genre, and it's got its own little twists and turns, and it isn't a slavish retread of everything else. So it's got its own quirks, uh, as we've said. I mean, you know, the fact that you know you don't get a final girl, the structure's quite interesting. There's nobody dying every kind of 10 or 15 minutes, which you'd normally get in these slashes. It kind of, it throws you a little bit. It, it leads you on a little bit. You think, is anybody actually going to die in this? I mean, when they start dying, oh my God, do they start dying? And it's, it's all in one. It's all in one go, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and it's pretty nasty as well. And, like, and then it's one kill after another from then. I know that the director said that he wasn't that pleased with the climax of it because they had to change locations. There's a bit of a chase and there's a kidnap sequence and it all ends up in a copper mine. Now, I think the copper mine location is pretty good, but 
he wanted to do something slightly different with the ending. I think it kind of works, the ending. What he said was that it's a good job that they show the killer's face as minimally as possible because I think the makeup effects are quite startling for a second, but I don't think they stand up to much close scrutiny. I think the first time I saw Cropsey's burnt face, I was quite taken aback, but I think the more you see it, the more it doesn't hold up. It looks a bit weird, I have to say. On one level, it is quite unpleasant, but it's also a bit ridiculous as well. Yeah, I agree with you. And Tom Savini himself wasn't um, wholly impressed with Cropsey's face. Yeah, I know what you mean. I think it's very much of its time. It's very dated. It's not super scary. I guess, like, as you say, like a quick startle of the face at the time would have been enough to unsettle viewers. But now, yeah, it doesn't really hold that impact. And again, I think it's more the impact of the kills that really get you in this movie. But when you see the blood, it is very, very red. So it has that, you know, fake element to it. So it it is not, you know, too horrific in that respect. But it is more the impact of um, the blades going into people. I think that's what makes it more frightening than it actually is, if that makes sense. It's just that, yeah. like, like it, it kind of toes the line between those those things. Like, it is you know, horrific in, on one hand, but on the other, it's, yeah, it looks quite fake at the same time. Yeah, I think it takes you out of it just enough for it not to be nightmare-inducing. Certainly, the build-up to the kills are very suspenseful, and the actual points of impact, certainly there's a scene where uh, one of the girls gets her throat slashed, and that's pretty unpleasant. But as you say, the blood is ex- extremely red. So when you kind of see it gushing from the throat wound, on one hand, you think, oh, that's horrible. But on the other hand, you think, but it's also a little bit cartoony as well. So I mean, it doesn't take you out of the movie at all, but it stops it from being something that um, you would... At the time, I was going to say it stops it from being something that people would complain about, but that's exactly what com- people did complain about at the time because I think it was the whole blood running down breasts thing that people were particularly upset about. I think, like, Bloody Moon came to grief about that. Well, most of Jess Franco's movies have got either boobs or blood or both in combination. So, I mean, Jess Franco upset everybody in the 80s with his movies, but there's something very similar here. But it's not particularly explicit or gruesome but any time they had blood running down the front of some girl it was like no that's gotta go cut that out (laughs) yeah but it's not the first movie to do it and it won't be the last and i think it would be interesting if these censors had a look at horror movies of today's standard and what they'd make of that because effects are you know on the improve and they are getting better and better and more realistic so Yeah, I mean, I think these days, I mean, if you look at something like The Burning, which was banned in the early 80s, and you look at some of the stuff that gets passed now, there's light years between those. I mean, yeah, attitudes have changed. Viewing habits are a bit more sophisticated. The classification board has got a bit more savvy about what people do and don't want to watch. I mean, at the time, I guess it was extremely frustrating when you got these things cut especially when you see the full version, because the the issue with seeing cut versions of things, the uncut version ended up being nothing like what you expected it to be. 
there were movies where I thought the cut version of this, you know, if they're cutting this, the uncensored version must be really extreme. And then when you actually come to see the uncut version, you think, well, it wasn't that bad, really. <laughs> they had this weird idea that they were protecting society at the time. My view is that they were just meddling. I mean, I wouldn't cut anything, but it was a different time and they just thought that everybody had to be protected from themselves because if you saw somebody hitting somebody in the head with an axe, then you'd go down to the hardware store and then you'd grab yourself an axe, then you'd go running around chopping people's heads off, which was absolute bloody nonsense. But this is where we were in the 80s. Yeah, and I think something like the burning, it's quite niche, so not everyone's going to go out and rent it. It's not going to, like, you know, come into the whole, like, mainstream audience. Um, I think, you know, it's more... Yeah, it was aimed at teenagers and, you know, horror fans. You know, horror fans are all ages, so... It does have that element to it where teenagers might have wanted to go to the cinema to to see it. But again, it's that whole thing. You go and enjoy it, have a good scare and then, you know, move on. But, you know, obviously in the 1980s, people didn't see things that way. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it was a weird time to try and steer away from the, uh, the video nasties for a second. I mean, one other point of note is that the editor on The Burning Walls, Jack Shoulder, who went and did some really good horror thrillers of his own. He did Alone in the Dark the year after, which is great. If you haven't seen Alone in the Dark, definitely seek it out because it's a really, really cool little horror movie. And then he did The Hidden, which is a really good sci-fi horror movie that was released in, I think, 87. So there's a lot of pedigree in The Burning. There's a lot of talents in here, in both in front of and behind the camera. So it's not just some hack horror job. There's, there are people that are actually decent filmmakers behind this. Tony Malum started off doing documentaries and music docs and stuff, and he, he was working in all sorts of different genres. So he obviously had experience. And I think the the DP on it is doing like Hollywood movies that he's there. So, you know, it's not something where you can look at it and go, it's, oh, it's some trashy little horror movie. Well, it might be some trashy little horror movie, but the people who worked on it went on to much bigger and better things. So for people that just dismiss it out of hand, the burning actually had some proper talent behind it. And it was very much a stepping stone as well for these people's careers. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not a throwaway slasher movie. It is actually one of the strongest. And, ooh, controversially, do I like it more than Friday the 13th? I'm not so sure. A few years ago, I might have said yes. But after re-watching Friday the 13th, the Abattoir, a couple of years ago, I was kind of like, no, I really do love this. So, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a tricky one for me to decide there. I think they sit alongside each other quite nicely because they've both got a different approach. They've both got a different style and they both still really work well. So as a double bill, you can see kind of both sides of the slasher coin. Friday the 13th is a really good audience movie. No doubt about it. And Sean Cunningham is a great director and he knows how to direct suspense. And both films have got a cast of really likeable characters. You don't want to see anybody killed off. It's from that era where you didn't throw anybody in that you wanted to see die. Later on in these franchises, certainly the Friday the 13th one, they would throw in a couple of people that you ju you just wanted to get killed off. Whereas the originals, it's full of people who are just there to have a good time and you like the characters. And it's got more impact when you see these people die. It just became kind of a body count franchise, the Friday the 13th series, which nothing wrong with that. It's quite entertaining, but it kind of strayed from where it started off. But yeah, I see what you mean with the, the comparisons, like which is better? 
I don't know which is better, actually. I think they've both got merits, and I think they both still stand up really well together. Yeah, definitely. And, um, yeah, thank God this isn't a face-off, because uh, we'd be a bit stuck at the moment. Yeah, yeah, We I don't <laughs> think we'd be able to separate these two. It'd just be like, right, we're going to have to call it a draw. <laughs> so there was discussion of a sequel being created for The Burning, but it just kind of, um, after the disappointing box office figures, it just kind of um, fizzled out. So I'm kind of glad there's no sequel, because as you say, like with Friday the 13th, it just went on and on and on, and they became just more outlandish the more they went on. They lost the heart that like the original had started with. So, you know, I don't think we need loads more cropsy movies i like how it ends as well i like how it goes back to that campfire tale and it kind of leaves it a little bit open-ended thinking is he still out there is he going to massacre these next set of campers i I quite like that how it ends without showing him like a lot of them these slasher movies they always do that one last scare at the end oh the killer's not really dead yeah one that springs to mind like and i know he did last summer the fisherman just smashing through a mirror Mm. and launching himself at jennifer love hewitt it's that kind of thing but this one doesn't do that i like how it's a lot more subtle and it just leaves it up to interpretation, like makes you wonder, is he still out there? Yeah, it's a good ending. And also, doesn't need a sequel, basically, because the way that they tie it up, it's just that it's a movie in itself. And I understand that they might have wanted to do another one, but they'd have had to take it in a completely different direction, the sequel, without giving too much away about what happens at the very end of the burning. I mean, they don't write themselves into a corner as such, but the second one would have had to been quite different to the first one if they were going to take another Cropsy Maniac. I like the fact that the burnings are just an item on its own and is just sitting there and there were no sequels. There isn't a burning universe. It's just the burning. You can only see this one movie and that's it. When you get to the end of it, there is no other stuff. There's no sequel to the burning. There's nothing else. Once you get to the end of it, that's it. And that happens quite rarely in horror these days. So The Burning is celebrating its 40th anniversary, which is insane. It's, you know, can't believe it's like reached that milestone. And yeah, it's a film that is worth celebrating, I think. Absolutely, yeah. I think that um, it's had its detractors over the years. But as a horror movie, as I've said, it really stands up. It hasn't dated all that much because I think it takes a classic location it doesn't lean into the technology at the time at all, really. So it stands as a sort of a record of the period as well. But as a straightforward horror movie, it just delivers everything that you'd want. And it actually gives you some character development, which a lot of these horror films don't do. Now, people might be twiddling their thumbs a bit in the first act, thinking, you know, when are people going to die? But the whole point is that they want to give you these characters and let you spend some time with them and get to know them and get to like them. And then it's like, right, okay, now we're going to kill all these people off. And it makes the murders that much more impactful because, you know, the point where they're struggling with the maniac and you're thinking like, no, don't die, don't die. And obviously, you know, it's like, it's a horror film, of course they're going to die. But that's one of the one of the skills of the burning. And I've, I've got a massive amount of time for this movie. I've lost count of the number of times I've watched the burning. I'll still watch it a whole load more. Yeah, it's definitely a slasher film that I'm happy to revisit. There's so many of them that I've thrown away, but this one still holds up.
the second of our 40 year old movies. Now I was going to say that this is the polar opposite of The Burning because The Burning is the stuff of nightmares. However, having seen this, I wouldn't say that this is not the stuff of nightmares. It's 1981's Heartbeep, directed by Alan Arkush. Where do we begin with this one? Heartbeeps is a movie I had never even heard of in my life. How about you, Darren? I'd vaguely remembered seeing it in the video shop and seeing the cover and thinking, am I going to rent this? And I probably didn't because there was probably some Italian Mad Max ripoff or some horror movie that I wanted to. And, and I think it was only like a U or a PG at the time. So it was like, nah, not renting that. And it had kind of disappeared into the mists of time and I'd forgotten about it. And it was when we were looking at 40-year-old movies that this came up and I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I vaguely remember Heartbeeps. I wonder what it's like. Uh, and I wasn't prepared for what it was like, to be perfectly honest. So the advice is approach this film with caution because the imagery in this movie is pure nightmare fuel. <laughs> it might be rated a U, but my God, some of the images in this film will stay with you. They will infiltrate your dreams. <laughs> so, I mean, heartbeeps. We haven't even got a full synopsis for this on IMDb. It's so baffling that all we've got is a storyline and it's a one paragraph storyline. And it's from Jean-Marc Rocher. And the storyline is, Val and Aqua are two household servant robots who start feeling emotions for each other. After falling in love, they decide to escape from their servitude and attempt to start a family of their own. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's very offbeat. Very, very offbeat. And it's just so unusual and it's very slow as well so it opens up in this factory oh well actually it opens up with this robot called crime buster which is reminiscent to me of the robots the killbots from chopping mall as yeah. i said to you when i was when i was watching it and so it begins with that and then he's like shooting at things and and then you get the universal logo and then it opens up in a factory and then you meet the main robots and they're just like talking for ages. And it's just, you're, you're sat there baffled, like what, what is going on with this film? Where is it going? What are we supposed to take from this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the general, the general trend of the movie is it's going almost nowhere because it's just, I mean, it, the, the robots meet up, they have a bit of a chat, they look at the sky, they talk about rainbows, they decide to escape in a van. They decide to build a child. They're getting pursued by people, including the crime buster. They go to a junkyard. It's just indescribably weird, this movie. And I don't know who it's for. Is it a comedy? Is it a kid's movie? Is it a fantasy? It's... I, I mean, I spent most of the 78 minutes that it runs just open mouth thinking like what is this movie what, what am i watching and the weird thing is that it obviously had a bit of money behind it it's a universal production john williams wrote the score i mean the score's all right actually the score's probably the best thing about the movie stan winston did the effects i mean stan winston was nominated for an oscar for these effects he lost out to american werewolf in london rick baker won the oscar that year probably quite rightly but i mean 
the robot makeup is effective. It's quite strange and it's quite outlandish, but it works. But there's so much wrong with this movie. The script's weird. The performances are weird. There's nothing really happens in the movie. They just amble about the countryside, just not trying to... Well, I mean, they're trying to escape this crime bust unit, but they're not doing it at a particularly fast pace. They amble about the countryside, making observations about life, and it's it's just bloody weird. <laughs> I think that just sums it up, to be honest. I think if we take on the perspective that this movie was aimed at children. Now, if I'd seen this as a child, I don't think I would have engaged with it in the slightest. I would have been really bored and really confused and maybe a little bit scared. And as an adult, I'm probably feeling all those things at the same time. It kind of feels a bit art house to a point as well because there's no real structure to it it's just got this oddness and it's yeah it, it's just not like a linear movie it doesn't really go anywhere and the, and the storyline isn't there and I, I just don't even know what, what's happened I don't know. this film has changed my life in a way that I don't understand I have so many questions yeah, I mean, I, I talked to somebody on WhatsApp about this movie and they said, oh, what's that movie? And they'd never heard of it. And I explained what the movie was and who was in it and when it was released and everything. And they said, um, so was it any good? And I was like, I don't know. I really don't know. Because I'm just baffled by pretty much everything in the movie. They escape, but they also escape with this stand-up comic robot who is obviously modelled on Rodney Dangerfield. He's got the voice and everything. I don't believe Rodney Dangerfield actually did the voice for the robot. It was somebody else doing an impression. But he's telling all these really weird <laughs> gags all the time, and complete with the own, his own drum roll at the end, whenever he tells the guy, there's the, the kind of the at the end of it. And it's just... I was, it was just, I was thinking, like, has somebody put drugs in my tea while I've been watching this? I, I don't understand where any, anything's going. It's just like a series of sequences which are just glued together. Nothing really connects. And it's just a lot of musings on, on life and from the view of a robot. And you're right, it's kind of art housey in that way. But again, I guess if some art house fans watched this, they'd be just as confused by it as the rest of us because it appears to be a movie that's aimed at families. It was released in the US around Christmas. I can't understand why they targeted the Christmas audience because there's nothing Christmassy about this. There's something vaguely sinister about the whole thing. Even though it's trying to be sweet, some of the dialogue is quite weird because there's a lot of dialogue centred around um, the robots having their pleasure sensors malfunctioning when they get near things. And it's like, yeah, that's a little bit gooey for, for this sort of movie. I wouldn't say that people shouldn't watch it because I think it's an experience. It's not a particularly positive experience, but I think you have to wander into this at least once. I mean, it's only an hour and 18 minutes. It's possibly the longest hour and 18 minutes you'll have spent but to be perfectly honest i mean i don't think we can adequately sum up how fucking bizarre this movie is from start to finish 
So what was interesting when I was researching into the movie, that it was basically riding on the popularity of Star Wars, because Star Wars was really big at the time. <laughs> and they felt that children like robots after seeing R2-D2 and C-3PO. So they decided to target this movie as uh, children and families. Which again is really bizarre because there's a big difference between the robots in the Star Wars franchise, which, you know, are quite quirky and, and sweet and, you know, they're iconic characters. But this, uh, I, as you say, there is there is something very, very sinister be beneath the surface of this. And it's it's so slow, as you said, like it's 78 minutes or 79, including credits. And it's just really, really boring. I had to keep pausing to check how long was left yeah just i i just i just don't know what to say i mean andy kaufman who starred in it apologized for how bad the movie was and jokingly offered to refund anybody who saw it this is what we're you know contending with here and sigourney weaver was up for the part of aqua but her agent talked her out of starring in it and rightly so i think her agent had foresight there sigourney dodged a bullet there or rather the agent dodged a bullet for her i mean Bernadette Peters is, is great in most things. And and to be perfectly honest, she's all right here. But, I mean, she can't save anything that's going off in this. There's lots and lots of talented and fairly well-known performers in this. I mean, Randy Quaid's in it. I mean, he's gone off the rails quite spectacularly recently, Randy Quaid. But back in the 80s, he was, you know, he was doing some good work. Christopher Guest is in it, out of Spinal Tap. I mean, he's, he's one of the guys in the junkyarders. Mary Warrenoff and Paul Bartell are in at one point. They're a sort of party goers at one point people who were sort of counterculture film comedians like that appearing in this so it's all over the map in terms of who's in it but nobody makes much of an impact because it's just so oddly put together and every time you get a bit of a thread that you think oh it might be going down this route or we might you know we might get a bit of you know, might get a comedic sequence here or we might get a bit of a chase or something. It's constantly undermining itself because it's already going in a million other directions. Crime Buster at one point just blows stuff up because maybe somebody thought, oh, we, want, we need an explosion in here. So he like, he'll shoot something to pieces or he'll blow something up just because he's this crime busting robot. It's just, it's just so bloody strange. This movie, I mean... I've got no idea. I mean, even now, I mean, I've seen some weird movies in my time. I can't even begin to think what people thought of this in 1981. Especially people who thought, oh yeah, Star Wars, robots, that sort of angle. Yeah, we'll go and watch this. I mean, I, I imagine they got a bit of a shock when they watched this because from C-3PO and R2-D2 who've got a bit of banter going and they're quite funny and a lot of what they do is played for laughs and as you say they're quite sweet human-sized robots who've got this like weird sheen on their face and look slightly odd purposely they look slightly odd because they're robots but but to sort of stick those in front of kids I imagine that there were a few well the few kids that probably went to see Heartbeats probably had nightmares coming out of it I'm with Andy Kaufman I mean if, if I'd have gone to see it and they've offered me a refund I'd have taken it to be perfectly honest I can't even say it's garbage because normally I mean there'd be a raft of things to say well you know it's terribly made and it's terribly acted it isn't terribly made it's really well made it isn't terribly acted either but it's just so far away from what my idea of a movie would be 
It's just it's just there. They've just plonked all this stuff down in sequence. Even at the end, I mean, you know, there's no there's no jeopardy. It doesn't really have it doesn't really have a logical conclusion. It just it stops and then somebody explains what happened and then you get a bit of a as an epilogue as to what's happened to anybody and it finishes. You know, it doesn't hang together. There's no, it's not structured like a normal movie. Things things don't really happen there's no particular drama in there even the point at which they're trying to get into a cave and there's a bear in the cave you think oh bit of comedic jeopardy in there that's just thrown away as well just it's just got all these ideas and it's just like no I'm not really interested in doing anything with this and it does it for the entire movie it's just i imagine the executives at universal i would only think that when they got this delivered to them they were absolutely bloody horrified in all sorts of ways because there's nothing you can do to this movie. You can't edit it to turn it into something else. There's so much wrong with this movie that it's like, there is, where do you start in this movie? If you're trying to turn it into a releasable product, where do you start? There's nowhere to go. You can't re-edit this movie. It's like the whole thing about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre when they were trying to cut it and somebody said, you can't cut the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because... There's nothing to cut. It's all the same. It's the atmosphere. It's you know, it's the whole thing. So if you try to cut anything out of it, you can't do it. It's a futile task. The whole lot has to go or nothing. Now, it's the same with heartbeats. You can't reassemble this movie into anything coherent. It's just a big pile of confusion. And, I mean, I'm glad I've seen it. But, I mean, as a credit roll, I was just left thinking, what the hell did I just watch? It was the same. It, it's a baffling movie. And don't you think that um, the makeup on Andy Kaufman, it looks like a ventriloquist dummy rather than like a robot. It yeah. Just, it's so weird. There's a creepiness to it. It's, it's, they look creepy. They sound creepy. I don't know if you, I guess you're supposed to be endeared to these robots, but it's really hard like to get there because... As I say, the dialogue is just really boring. The movie's slow. You can't really connect with them. And then this whole crime stopper, like, robot, it just seems out of place as well. It doesn't feel like it suits the movie. It feels like that robot belongs in a different movie, maybe an action film, maybe Chopping Mall. Yeah, I mean, he'd have done all right in Chopping Mall, Crime Buster, because he's got the firepower to deal with everybody. Yeah, and it starts with him. It starts as if it's almost going to be his movie, because it's almost like the start of something like Dragnet where he's talking about his job and that he has to bring people to justice and you get a minute of that before they even start into the movie so you think oh is this going to be a movie about the crime busting robot and then it it sidelines in for a bit so it, it focuses on the main two robots it's it's all over the place it just doesn't know what it wants to be and you're right he does look like a ventriloquist dummy Andy Kaufman I was kind of thinking of Dead Silence the James Bond movie yeah. when it, when it was playing out I mean, obviously, it's not quite as gruesome and grotesque as Dead Silence, but it's not far off, considering it's only like a U or a PG movie. I mean, there's stuff in this that's incredibly disturbing. I mean, you don't have to have gore and people dying every two seconds for it to be unbelievably eerie and creepy. And this is. And the whole thing about two robots falling in love. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's some mileage in that idea, but the way that they approach it is just so weird. And the fact that they build this kid and it's kind of rattling about, it's 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 just all so offbeat. But not offbeat in a good way. It's just like, 
no, I'm I'm not enjoying any of this. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's unpleasant, but there's something about it that just made my skin crawl at the same time. It's just, I mean, I'm glad that something like this got made because it just proves that anything can make it to the big screen. But my feeling is that the end product was nothing like Universal had envisioned it to be at the inception of the project. That's all I'm going to say because, I mean, I would have loved to, to be in the room where they had to sit and watch the finished cut of Heartbeeps in the Universal lot with all the executives there. I'm sure that they just must have sat there thinking like, oh my God, what what are we going to do with this movie? So I love watching bad movies and, you know, I get some sort of enjoyment out of them just sitting there thinking, how the hell did this get made? And what's interesting about Heartbeats is the fact that I've never come across it before. I've never seen it on a list of like bad movies you should watch. Maybe it's one you shouldn't watch. Um, it's actually got a 23% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes and a 0% tomato meter. Now that is brutal. Yeah, I think the 0% is like, there's only like six reviews or something from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and none of them think it's very good. 23% audience score, that's... That's odd. I thought it'd be lower, but I mean, if you look on IMDb, I think it's got has it got something like four point three or something on IMDb. That's but, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there are some people there that are, have really gone to bat for this movie, saying that oh, it's like part of their childhood and they remember how charming it was. Charming? I I really don't see the charm in this movie. I just felt slightly unnerved through most of it. Yeah, like looking at the um, user reviews on IMDb, we've got titles such as Slow But In A Charming Way. Someone has rated it a 10, saying one of the most oddest movies ever made. And then somebody else has put Obscure For Good Reasons. (laughs) Now, it is obscure, but... (laughs) I don't know what these good reasons are, but... Yeah, again, like, I can't imagine anyone engaging with this in their childhood. Well, maybe in the sense of, like, because you don't really think into things too deeply at that age, so you're kind of presented with something and you kind of accept it. I think that's maybe what, you know, people probably have, if you know, if they watch it as a child, there's that nostalgic aspect. Yeah, maybe. I I don't know. I just can't imagine myself enjoying this in any capacity. No. I definitely didn't at um, my grand old age now. So <laughs> No, because, I mean, you'd think that if kids were looking for the sort of bright colours and sort of nice settings and stuff, it isn't really pitched that way because the factory is very much like a factory. It's not like toys where it's very, it's very vivid and there's lots of really good set design. This is just like a normal factory with sort of forklifts going around and things. So you don't get that kind of sense of fantasy. And then when they're out in the countryside, there's not really an awful lot other than countryside. And then the junkyard, there's not settings that kind of transport you to anywhere else. It's just a really mind-bending movie. Um, I, I'm probably not going to watch it again. I mean, I think once is more than enough with this. But for people who kind of say, oh, it reminds me of my childhood. I don't know, what does it say about their childhood that Heartbeeps is, is, a, is a memory of that? If I'd seen it as a kid, then... I think even as a kid, I would have thought, no, I'm I'm backing away from this. I mean, I remember how things like Star Wars and some of the Disney movies made me feel as a kid, I'm pretty sure Heartbeeps wouldn't have had the same effect on me. I'd have just been sitting there thinking, what am I, what am I watching? 
I mean, pretty much what I thought when I watched it a few days ago. I was just sitting there thinking, I have no idea what this movie was trying to say. Was it a comedy? Was it a romance? It was none of those things. It was just 78 minutes in the twisted mind of somebody who didn't know how to put a movie together. I've seen Jess Franco movies that are more coherent than this, and that is saying something. I do not know where this movie was going at all. It being like a fetish movie, that's what went through my mind at one point. Yeah, could be. Could be. I mean, if you're, if you're into robots or if you're into humans pretending to be robots, maybe. You, I mean, you don't even get an awful lot of that either. <laughs> it's just really weird and disjointed and it's not funny and it's badly written and it just plods along and then it finishes and it's they kind of have this got a grandiose score at the end it's like ta-da we've done all of this and it's like you've done nothing you've done nothing over 78 minutes you've just farted about it's just these couple of robots just dicking about in the countryside and eventually the plot kind of grinds to a halt and even at the end it's just like you have to have somebody explain it they haven't even got the good grace to put a couple of scenes that explain where they went there's somebody in a factory telling you what happened to them at the end and then you get a little bit of a scene and that's the end of the movie it's like they couldn't even fucking finish the movie properly it's not it's not even a frustrating experience i was just like they're thinking what why did they make this movie it's so weird it's mind-boggling and i feel very (laughs) sorry for the actors going through all that like makeup process to have all that and then for this movie to be absolutely appalling. Yeah. It's just, yeah, and for no one to even see it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's obviously sort of disappeared into obscurity. So to be perfectly honest, you're right. I mean, somebody should have, they should have sent somebody round to Bernadette Peters' house every day for a few years after that and apologised to her for making her go through all of that makeup process to just be in a movie that's just so lacking in any sort of entertainment value whatsoever i mean what can i say go see it <laughs> yeah and i'd be very interested to hear from any of you listeners if you have seen this movie what are your thoughts on it and if you are tempted to go and watch this movie for the first time it is available to watch on youtube someone has kindly uploaded it so uh, you don't have to uh, spend your hard-earned money on it <laughs> <laughs> I do wish we could chat longer. And that's it for episode 40 of the HD Movie Podcast. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode or have any comments to make on Heartbeats, you can follow us on all our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at HD Movie Podcast. So, what's next? Well, after 40 consecutive episodes, it's time for a little bit of a break. I think we both deserve a bit of time off and I'm sure that you deserve a bit of time off after listening to us for such a long stretch of time. But don't worry, folks, because we're going to be back around Halloween. I'm so excited. So at this point of recording, I have yet to see the new Candyman movie, but I will be seeing it very soon. And that is what we are going to be um, focusing our next episode on. So for Halloween, it's Candyman 1992 versus Candyman 2021. I've seen them both and I can't wait for us to talk about them both. So until then, stay safe for the break, folks, and we'll see you soon. The HD Movie Podcast is presented by Hayley Alice Roberts and Darren Gaskell. 
Its music is written and performed by Mitch Bain. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes and Podbean.